Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We are in this series called The Holy Spirit, the forgotten third person of the Trinity. And we're going to be a little bit bouncing around in terms of the word today. Uh, this is actually a study, but most of the time, for those of you that have been around a little bit, um, you, you probably know this, but if you're new, you may not realize most of the time when we preach, we take a Bible and we open up to a book. We look at the Gospel of Mark, or we look at Ephesians, or we look at something out of the Old Testament. And we open that book up and we begin to work kind of verse by verse through that book and just unpack it and, and kind of let you see what that, uh, that book of the Bible is all about. But sometimes uh, what we realize is there's some topics that are really hard to address that way because there's not any kind of 12 verse section or small section of the Bible that covers everything in that topic. And so there's something called systematic theology where we step back and we say, okay, let's systematically unpack what the whole Bible says. And that's kind of what we're doing in this series. We're going to step back and go, okay, from Genesis to Revelation, what does the Bible have to say about the Holy Spirit? And since there's not any one place to just say, well, here's everything you need to know, we're going to kind of work our way through a lot of different places and try to connect the dots for you so that you understand and begin to grow a little more in your understanding and your relationship to the Holy Spirit. So does that make sense? Yeah, that works. Okay, so we're going to run that direction. Last week, we began our series by saying that the Holy Spirit is one distinct person among the Trinity. And the Christians, we believe that there is a triune God, one God, and three persons. Uh, we'll give you these three very simple statements um, that, that sort of describe that. Um, and this is Wayne Grudem talks about these and says, God is three persons. Each person is fully God and there is one God. If you remove any one of those statements, you uh, undercut the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, you have to hold all three of those together. And yes, that is a mystery. And yes, your finite mind can't wrap, your, can't, can't wrap its little self around all the infinite mystery of, of the Trinity and the God that we worship. And that's actually a good thing because you'll spend all of eternity trying to unpack that and you will never exhaust lost new knowledge, discovering what God is like. So first, we said last week that we've got to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person that you can have a relationship with. That means he thinks, he has a will, he has a desire, he has a relational capacity to be able to interact with us. And so you can have a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, said last week that once you understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, then the next thing you want to ask is, what kind of person is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is he like? Um, what, what would knowledge of him or relationship with the Holy Spirit be like? Can I trust him? It's a pretty good question to ask, right? Especially something that sometimes is referred to as a ghost. And so this is one of those, this is kind of where we're going to go uh, this week, is we're going to talk about what the Holy Spirit is like. Now, as I've talked to people about this series, and, and I've interacted with several uh, of you, and there's a, a lot of interest in this topic, but I, I really have kind of found three different groups of people um, in different, the, the different, different groups that see this in a different way. One is a group that's kind of new to church and new to the Bible, and they look at this topic of the Holy Spirit, and they go, yeah, this whole thing's just kind of weird. 
right? Because all this is new to them. Then there's another group of, of people that maybe grew up in church, but they said they grew up in a church that, well, they just stayed away from this topic. And so this is a topic that their church just ignores. So they don't feel like they know anything, except that maybe it was a little bit scary because for some reason the church never wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit. And then there's a third group of people that, that, that maybe saw it a little differently. And they said, I grew up in church that talked a whole lot about the Holy Spirit, but I'm pretty sure most of what they said was wrong. And so I'm a little bit scared of this topic too. And so those are kind of the three groups as I've interacted with people uh, that, that seem to interact or exist in our world. And part of what I see in that is that very few of us feel very confident about that we've had good teaching in this area, that we have a good understanding of what a relationship with the Holy Spirit looks like. Uh, it seems to be pretty rare in our day. But here's what the Bible has to say. And if you believe the Bible's true, the Holy Spirit is an incredible gift. The Holy Spirit is something that ought to blow you away and, and ignite your imagination for what a relationship with God would be like. In fact, if you enjoy a relationship with the Holy Spirit, what we see in the Scripture is that your life is going to be richer, stronger, and that you will have an increasingly more God-honoring life if you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So um, we're going to lean in there on this, this, uh, this afternoon or this morning and see what we can learn about the Holy Spirit. Let me start with this, big picture. Uh, John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life, that they, meaning the followers of Jesus, this is eternal life, the followers of Jesus would come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is what eternal life is. When you think of eternal life, when you think about our salvation, what are the things that first come to your mind? For most people, I think it's, well, my sins are forgiven. Well, I, I no longer, I no longer um, am going to go to a bad place. I get to go to a good place. And so we tend to think about these things like I get to escape punishment for my sin. I get to live in a place of eternal bliss, and that's all good, and those are things that I want. But what, what does this passage say? That eternal life is really something more than that. That ultimately it's that we get to know God, that we have a relationship with him, that we get to, uh, we get to enjoy God. So according to the, this verse, the ultimate goal of our salvation in our life is knowledge of the Lord. It's a relationship with the Lord. Um, now, it's important to say that this is not just intellectual knowledge about God. Jesus goes on elsewhere and prays that, um, that his people would, would love God, that his people would glorify God, that they would delight in, in the person of, um, of our God. And so he does not just want us to know God externally as this kind of piece of factual data or information or something that you go, well, I have intellectually, uh, I, I have an understanding of this being that's called God out there. No, it's an, internal, it's an internal delight and desire to know the person of God in a, in a way that's a relationally, a relationally aware and connected way in our hearts. That's what ultimately this passage is talking about. But here's what I think most of us think of when we think of salvation. It's like uh, someone tells you you got a free ticket to a concert. And so you go, oh, that's great. And they say, well, you'll, you know, you'll receive your ticket at 10 a.m. You're like, okay, that's great. Someone else bought me a ticket. I get to go to a concert. And, uh, and so that Saturday morning, you're looking forward to it. You're waiting. You're coming around. And at 10 a.m., uh, you're kind of dragging out of bed, and you're thinking someone's going to drop the ticket off, and all of a sudden a limo rolls up. And that limo comes up, and three of your friends jump out, and they go, let's go, 
And you're like, well, I'm not dressed yet. And they go, don't worry about it. We got you covered. And they jump in the car and they take you to place and they buy you a new outfit and you get to go out to the concert and you go to the show. And when you get there, you realize you're having dinner with the band. And not only that, but you get to go backstage and you've got a pass and you and your buddies are hanging out and you're like, dude, I'm not just going to the concert, like I am in the concert. Like I'm in the, the business with the band and the band makes you an honorary member and they go, you're coming to the after party and afterwards you go home and you go back to the house with them and you're hanging out with the band and uh, you're playing some cards and you're gonna stay there and the next day they go, hey, catch the plane, we're going to the next, they're going to the next deal and you just realize, man, this was a whole lot bigger than what I thought it was, right? So I think sometimes we live as though salvation is, well, you get a free ticket to something and all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you go, oh, this is a whole lot bigger than I thought it was. And that's what I think we're intended to see by, by this, uh, this idea of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit's going to reveal to us. And I hope you have a little bit of that sense today of, wow, this thing is a lot bigger than I realized it was. So more than anything else, the Spirit is, is the one who helps us know God. He's the one who experientially helps us relate to God and see God and understand who God is. In fact, in the Nicene Creed, so in the, the early church, whenever the church began to have these kind of discussions about what was true and what was false and what was right and what was wrong, uh, they eventually put out these statements called the creeds that are these, we're going to try to put out a concise summary of what the faith, what, we, what it is we believe. And so in the Nicene Creed, that when they talked about the Holy Spirit, it's amazing. They start off and they say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And don't you love that description? That the Holy Spirit, when they said, if we're going to give you the very first thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit, it's that he is the giver of life. Um, I, I want to be connected to the giver of life, don't you? Um, that's, what, that's how they summarized who the Spirit was. And so in, uh, let's go back and look at Genesis. Let's so start at the very beginning. Genesis uh, 1, verse 2, so, or verses 1 through 3, actually. Uh, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So before there was a world, there was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit existed before anything else that was created existed. So the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit's eternal. The Holy Spirit's forever. But the Holy Spirit was there hovering over the faces of, uh, of the earth or of the dark whenever God spoke and light came into the world. He was there at the very beginning of creation. He was one of the um, instruments of the creation of the universe. And Genesis says over and over and over what? It was good. It was good, it was good. So the Spirit was there, and he brought life along with the Father and Son to the world. Then in Genesis 3, what happens? Story turns. Something bad begins to happen that sort of dampens the mood. Adam and Eve decide they're smarter than God, and they, they sin. And um, they, they trusted themselves more and their own desires more than they trusted the Lord, and they chose to disobey. Anyone relate to Adam and Eve? Anyone ever think that my desires are more important than God's desires? Anyone ever think that what I want is more important than what God wants? Anyone ever think that I'm smarter than God is? You don't want to admit that here, but our lives say that that's true, right? Um, and so what happened when Adam and Eve sinned was that this resulted in isolation and separation in their relationship with God. It result, resulted in isolation and separation in their relationship with one another. It resulted in isolation and separation even from their relationship to themselves. They felt ashamed of who they are. They looked down on themselves and said, well, you loser, you never should have done that. 
And so they felt distanced and displaced, even, even in their own relationship to themselves. The Bible called this a kind of a death. And not a death that means like a non-existence, but a, a spiritual sort of death. And so because of that, there was a, a spiritual death and a cut, being cut off from the life of God, the, the life that God wanted them to have and the flourishing of life that he wanted them to have, all because of sin. And that eventually led to physical death as well. We see in Romans 5.12 that that didn't just stop with Adam and Eve, but it trickled all the way down to us. Romans, uh, Romans 5.12 says, just as sin came in to the world through one man, who's the one man? Adam, um, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's you and me, by the way. You fit in that all. All means all. So we're all in that, uh, in that bad scenario. And so from Genesis 3 on, the Bible is the story of a search for an answer to our sin problem. And so from Genesis 3, that's, that's what the Bible is about. Genesis 4, what happens? Uh, Cain immediately kills Abel, and sin gets worse. Uh, God, then... God has Noah build an ark and uh, sends a flood. And he says, I'm just going to start this whole thing over. We're going to do, do it over with you, Noah, and your family. And so he sends a flood. He destroys everyone else. Noah and his, his family get on the ark, and they're preserved from that. Eventually, uh, the, the rains dissipate, and the land, land uh, starts to appear again. And what's the very first thing Noah does? Plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and falls asleep butt naked in his tent. Um, that, I mean, literally, that's the very next thing you see in the life of Mo, in the life of Noah, um, and and his kids. It says, "Come in," and they see that, and they're like, "I can't unsee that." So they kind of take a blanket and do one of these and drop it over Noah, and that's what happens when God re- restarted the world through the flood. Let me ask you this: Did that fix the sin problem? Clearly not, right? I mean, ask Noah's kids. He's like, no, this sin problem is definitely not fixed. Um, then right after that, what we see is the people um, begin to move on and they begin to organize. And now they're getting, uh, they're, they're building a society and they're building a society around what? Around making a name for themselves. And so they begin to build something called the Tower of Babel. And they say, we're going to build a tower for ourselves to make a name for ourselves all the way up to the heavens. So again, the same problem is, uh, the same thing happens. We're going we're gonna to do something that puts us up on the level of God. And so what, what does the Lord do? He disciplines the people. He comes in and says, I'm going to break you all up, and I'm going to give you your own languages. Did that fix their sin problem? No, it just made them less efficient sinners. Because now they couldn't work together because they couldn't communicate. Uh, but they, were still, they still had just as big of a sin problem. So God's discipline and redirection didn't fix it. So then uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Israel, come on the scene, and God promises them that I'm going to make you a great nation. And he promises them land. You're going to have a promised land. He promises them seed, that you're going to have descendants. And he promises a blessing, that you're going to bring blessing to the whole world. And, and so you see this family begin to go through, and yet they all have their own problems. Abraham lies about his wife and who she is. You see, um, Isaac has... It has, has different, a different set of issues. Jacob deceives, and then eventually Jacob's sons actually sell uh, Joseph, their young brother, into slavery. Um, and so did having a nation for themselves fix the problem of sin? Uh, that too did not fix the problem of sin. So soon after, all of Israel is taken into slavery in Egypt, and then God sends Moses to deliver the people, saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. And after they escape out of uh, out of Egypt, and, and they're heading towards the promised land, God uh, calls 
Moses up on a mountain and then God himself uh, at the mountaintop descends in a storm cloud. And you remember that God speaks out of that cloud and it terrifies everyone down below because the transcendent, fearful God and the holy God has descended upon them in an imminent fashion that makes them terrified. In fact, Moses' face glows because he's been in the proximity of God and God who's transcendent has become near and it's terrifying to them because he is holy and holy other than they are. But God makes a covenant with his people that if they honor him, that he will bless them. And he gives Moses a set of laws which the people are supposed to follow. And these laws are summed up in 10 laws that are called the Ten Commandments. Remember that God wrote the laws on two tablets and he wrote and he sent them down with Moses and carved, carved them so that he could take them down and show the people the law. Um, let me ask you a question. Does law fix the problem of sin? Now, what happens as soon as Moses gets down from the mountain? Actually, before Moses even gets down the mountain, God goes, hey, by the way, they're doing it. They're messing up again. And so Moses um, goes down the mountain, and as he heads down, down the mountain, he notices the people have built a golden calf, and they're worshiping a false god, and they're, they're having a big-time party, and Moses goes down, and he gets so angry. What does he do? He snaps, and he, then he snaps the stone tablets, right? Like, he, he does what some of us do, and we don't want to admit, but we get a little bit angry, and we just want to throw something. And Moses just goes, goes you know, just embraces that anger and takes those stone tablets that God had just given him and smashes them on the ground out of anger towards the people for their sin. God, Moses, when he'd been in the presence of holiness, was repulsed by sin and angered by sin and bothered by sin. He didn't have the right response, but there's an instinct in him that said, if God is like a holy God, then when we are unholy, it's repulsive to me. And so he, he, he fights against that. See, now, when we see, what we see in the rest of the Old Testament is the people struggling to live under the law. But the law can't free them and can't make them holy. The law is ultimately, it's an external code of rules pushed down upon them, trying to conform them and cause their behavior to change. But the law can't change their heart. And so the law could reveal God's holiness. The law could reveal man's sinfulness. But the law couldn't change them on the inside. It was external, not internal. The law could condemn them because they were not like God. But the law could not conform them to become more like God. And so it fell short and was unable to really fix the sin problem. Now, why am I telling you all this story? Are you depressed yet? Like, it's kind of a monotonous and sad story that just goes for century after century after century. And if you think the five or so minutes I took to just unpack that was monotonous and sad, try living through century after century after century of humanity continuing to wallow in its sin and have the law go, hey, look how sinful you are. Hey, look how much you messed up. Hey, look where you don't line up. Hey, look how you're not holy, as holy as God is. Hey, look where you blew it today. And think about the weight of that. Now, what the Old Testament shows us is that something more was needed to fix the problem. That somehow law was not going to fix it. You know, I was kind of laughing this, uh, this morning about this because Chris was telling me that uh, some of you, if you've gone to the bathroom, this is kind of an awkward conversation right now, but if you try to go to the bathroom today, you go out, you'll notice some of the bathrooms here at the school are locked. And the reason they are locked is because uh, kids have a sinful heart. Uh, but Chris got a, got a text from the principal today saying, hey, I'm sorry, I've got to lock some bathrooms. There's a TikTok challenge going around and kids are destroying all the bathrooms and we just can't keep up with it. 
Now, let me ask you, do you think they've put a, a rule in place at this school that kids can't destroy bathrooms? Yeah, I'm going to guess they have a rule for that. I'm guess they let people, kids know, like, you know, tearing up bathrooms, not okay. Tearing up bathrooms, bad. But that rule hasn't really changed behavior, has it? So they have to lock us out because they, they can't fix the deal. And, and the reality is that's kind of what the law was. The law was that, that there's something in our hearts that wants to do something stupid and crazy and wrong. And God says, no, that's going to cause damage and pain and difficulty. But we keep doing it, and we keep doing it, and we keep doing it. And God gives us a law, but it, doesn't, it can't conform us. It can only condemn us. And so God has to do something else to fix the sin problem. Look with me at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, out of the, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was, their, though I was like their husband, declares the Lord. For this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see the difference that's there? So he talks about a difference, a shift between an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant was the covenant he made with Moses up on the mountaintop where he brought down the law and said, as you, uh, that there will be blessings and cursings, that as you obey, you'll receive blessing and relationship with me. As you disobey, there'll be distance and, and you'll be isolated from me. And yet I'm going to be for you and you're my people and I'm in a covenant relationship with you. So there's this old covenant, but it couldn't fix the sin problem. And so eventually God comes and says, look, even though I was like a husband who loved you as, as a spouse that cared deeply for you and was in relationship with you, you continue to run away from me. You continue to be disobedient. You continue to harm this relationship. So I'm going to have to do something even more. He says, no, don't, now I'm not going to take an external law. I'm going to give you an internal law. And I'm going to write the law in your heart. I'm going to make you to be my people. And, you will be, and I will be your God. And so you move from this old covenant to the new covenant, from the external to the internal. Why? Because the, the sin problem was ultimately a heart problem, right? And so the, whenever you, if you want to fix the sin problem, you had to fix the heart problem. Let's look at another passage from the Old Testament that's key in understanding the shift to, uh, to the new covenant. And this is in Ezekiel chapter 36. We're just going to take two verses. Uh, 36, look at verses 26 and 27. Say this, and, um, and I, this is God speaking to Israel again. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who initiates the action? God does. Um, what do we do in the deal? We just have a heart that's messed up. What does God do? He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you, I'll write my law in your heart. I will, um, I will do all the work that needs to be done here, and I will put my spirit within you in order to bring these things about. And that's what results of this. Now, I know this is a whole lot of information. So, and it, there, there's a risk here of this becoming very theoretical for us. Can I tell you just a story of kind of when this first came to life for me? 
Um, when in my life story, you guys heard a couple weeks ago, uh, I talked about a time where I was in college and I just was struggling with lust. And um, God, sometimes when you're in these seasons of life, gives you a passage that, that becomes what I call an anchor passage. It becomes a passage that, man, I just anchor my soul to this and, and hold it to be true. And for me, uh, this was, this is actually my Bible. This is my old NIV study Bible. You can see it's Seen better days. My grandmother gave me this as a graduation gift from high school, and I took it to college with me. And um, um, and I've actually got a passage of this. So I think we've got a slide for you to look at. But this passage, Ezekiel thirty-six. You notice the underlines there. Um, that was me in my dorm room, my freshman year of college. And I had started just reading the Bible through, and I got to this passage, and. I had no idea this was about the old covenant and the new covenant and internal and external and any of this stuff. All I knew was, dude, I keep stumbling. I keep falling on my face. I keep struggling. I don't seem to be able to beat this sin. And I don't know how, to, I don't know how else to fight this thing. And I, I feel like I'd done everything I knew what to do. And so I stumbled across this passage, and it just kind of leapt off the page to me where God said uh, that, that I'm going to do these things for the sake of my holy name. And God says, I will show you the holiness of my great name. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. And I just began being taken back by that and going, Lord, that's what, that's what I need. I need you to do something for your sake so that I can do what's right uh, but you're, you're going to have to do something through me in order for that to happen. And it's amazing. If you go through this passage sometime, go back, look later, underline every time it says, I will. It's, it's literally the entire passage where God just says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will do it. I will do this. I will do this for you. It says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow in my ways. I will save you. I will call. I will increase. Then you will remember your wicked needs, and you will loathe them, and you'll desire something better. Do you see how important that would be in your own struggle? See, the Spirit is not something that's just out there. The, the Spirit is something that God says, I will put in here. And friends, if you belong to the Lord, you have the Spirit in you. Because God said, I will do it. And I will give you a new heart. And I will change you. And I will cause you to desire my ways. And I will be at work in your heart, at, at the core of who you are. And so that was my story, was that God the Father was going to put the Spirit in me and move me in a new direction, and he did. He was faithful to do so. But, friends, that was a promise. I think I read that passage every day for about 30 days. And I would go back and I'd read it and say, God, you promised. And I would literally open it up, and I'd, just, I'd, I'd go to God in prayer and say, God, you promised you'd do this. You said it. It says right here, I will do this. So you have to do this. And I just would pray that promise back to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I need you to do. I need you to be faithful to, to do the thing you said you're going to do. Friends, you need to know that God is personal, that God cares for you, 
that what the Christian life is about is not just taking the external law that presses down on you and says you're not enough and you're not good enough and you can never do enough and so you have to try harder and try harder and try harder. No, the gospel of Christ says that Christ paid the penalty for your sins, but he didn't just stop there. He actually went the next step and said, but I will put your spirit, my spirit within you and I will change you and I will transform your life as well. So what does this mean um, for, for you and for me today? It means that God's going to, to give you a new heart, that he's in the process of giving you a new heart through his Holy Spirit. So let's, let's jump over to the New Testament. Let's look at 2 Corinthians, and I want to show you a little more about how this works itself out. If you go to 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're going to look at just a few verses here because Paul tries to bring all this together in a way that it makes sense for us after Christ has already um, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, been resurrected, ascended the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit. And so verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 3 says this, You are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. What is, what is it that Paul is saying? Do you recognize first any language here from Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36? Paul is pulling directly from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel, and he's saying, look, that, that, that you're not going to be like a stone tablet. You're going to be something written not with ink or not with God, that's something that God carved on, on a stone tablet. You're going to be something that God wrote on human hearts. You yourself are a letter from Christ written by the Spirit. So think about the imagery that Paul's using. He says, just like Moses went to the mountaintop and he went up and he met with the Lord and the Lord gave him stone tablets and he wrote the law in the heart and Moses brought those down to the people and they could see the law of God written on stone tablets. What Paul's saying is, now we have something better than that. Something more real than a stone tablet carved by the hand of God. It's you and me written on by the, by the Spirit through the person of Jesus. He says, you're the testimony, you're the letter, you're the witness of what God is doing. You're a letter written by Christ and sent to us. He continues in the next verse. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiencies from God, meaning I, I couldn't do it all. It, only, it can only happen if God provides and God was sufficient. So we're confident because God was sufficient to do it. He's the one who made us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives what? Life. This is the law can condemn the Spirit can give life. The law can tell you you're not enough. The Spirit can make you new. So because of Christ, and we're no longer under the letter of the law that condemns us, he was sufficient to fulfill the law on our behalf. So that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans says. We're not under condemnation. And so we're not, we're not awaiting wrath and death. We're freed from that because of what Christ has done for us. And um, so it's not just that he forgives us of our sins, he actually frees us from sin. So he doesn't just want to help you escape the penalty of sin, he actually wants to free you from the power of sin. Skip down a couple of verses, 2 Corinthians 3, um, verse 17. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. See, we're being transformed, he says, from one degree of glory to another. That uh, means there's a process that's in place. There's something that's happening. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. We're being made to look like him. We're being made more holy. And how is it that we're doing that? It's through the Spirit. The Spirit brings freedom from sin, and the Spirit is the one that it says this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's, we're being transformed by him. But did you notice the, uh, the, the mechanism that he's using? To, do, to bring about this transformation. We all with unveiled face, meaning that the Spirit took the blinders off our eyes so we could really see Jesus for who he really is. He says, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. How do you change? Well, it's not by looking at all your sin. It's ultimately by looking at the face of Christ. He skips down, down in verse, or chapter 4. Let's skip down to verse 6, last verse here. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul's trying to say here? He actually, in the verses right before that, he speaks of blindness. He says, those who don't know Christ are, are actually blinded, have, have their minds blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What the Spirit does is the Spirit takes the blinders off. The Spirit allows us to see, shines in our heart that we might see the beauty and the glory of Christ. We might see his gospel, that we might trust in him and believe. He opens the eyes of our heart that we might believe in Jesus. There's an old worship song that goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Um, that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit turns the eyes of your heart to Jesus. And when he does, everything else that, that you used to run after, everything else you used to desire, all the things you wanted, they look strangely blah. Like you begin to look at those and you're like, meh. Because you look at Jesus and you go, yes, I need him. And it's his glory and his grace that draws you out. This is what the Spirit does in us. Can I make one last connection? You notice what it says in that verse that um, the God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, um, where did that take place? Remember Genesis 1, two, Genesis 1? At the very beginning of physical creation, when it said the Spirit was there, and God said, let the light shine out of the darkness. In the physical creation, the Spirit was there to bring about new life in our physical lives, in the physical creation of this planet. Spiritually, it's the same as true. In our hearts, the Spirit breaks through and gives light in our hearts that we might see Jesus and gives us new life and spiritual life that's there. In fact, what we see is that the Spirit opens our eyes that we could see Christ. In fact, in John 15, Jesus says that the Spirit will testify about me. The Spirit will glorify me. The Spirit will reveal to you who I am. And you'll see the goodness of Christ because of the Spirit. Romans 5, 5. We'll end with this verse. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Friends, if, you, if, you're, if you're someone who's trusted Christ for your salvation, if you put your faith in him, you have the Holy Spirit. 
That means that God's love has been poured into your heart by the Spirit. Friends, don't underestimate what that means. Sometimes we talk about God's grace and we think it's forgiveness of sins, but God's grace is not just forgiveness of sin. God's grace is not just a do-over so you can do better. God's grace is not just a, a wiping of the slate clean so that you can try to get a better, try to do better on the checklist as you move forward. And God's grace is forgiveness of sins, but it's also receiving a new heart, having the love of God poured out in your heart, learning to, to know God, to love God, to desire a relationship with God. Now, this was at the very heart of the Reformation. Uh, the, the, eventually the Reformers came, and part of what, part of what they said was that, that Christianity and what the Scriptures teach and what the gospel of Jesus is about is not just external rules that you have to work yourself through so that you can be okay with God and, and get a pass to a better life, but that ultimately it is God taking up residence in us. It's God's grace in us. It is forgiveness for our sins, but it's not just a, another chance. It's an entirely new life. And that new life is birthed by the Spirit in us and continuing to work in our lives. So friends, as we think about this, um, if, if, if our eternal life is ultimately about knowing God, how's your heart for God? How's your love for God? you hungry for him? Do you want to know him more? Are you chasing after the stuff that if you really listen to the Spirit would make you go, meh, don't care about any of that anymore? Are you fixing your eyes on Christ and allowing the Spirit to illuminate him so that you fall more and more in love with him? Um, I know this is a lot today, a lot of theory. Next week, Chase is going to take the fellowship of Spirit, and he's going to kind of break down how we walk in this and what it looks like for us to unpack this on a day-to-day um, sort of practice level. And in some ways, this is, the, this is the lecture. Chase gets to give you the lab, right? And so I get to give you some of the theory and uh, the truth behind what Scripture says beginning to end about why the Spirit is such a big deal in our lives. Uh, next week, Chase is going to show you how it is you walk in that and get to live in it as he talks about the fellowship of the Spirit. So um, look forward to that and uh, be good stuff. So we'll see you next week. But um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you, through your son Jesus, would that you'd bring new life to each of us. Oh, I don't want to just run past this. and oh, It's easy to pray and begin just to rattle off words, but Father, we're, we're finite people who barely can keep an attention span for 35 minutes. And there's no way we can understand who you are and all that it means that you are a three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, Father, we know that because you care about us, that you, that you want us to know you. And Father, we just ask for your help. We come and admit that and our minds are distracted by all kinds of stuff that won't ultimately fulfill us. Father, would you help us to let go? Would you, by your Spirit, turn our eyes to look at Jesus, to look at his grace, to look at the love that we have in you and that we would begin to desire you at a deeper place in our hearts. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you that for sending your son because you loved us to die for us, to give us forgiveness of sins, to achieve for us justification that we might be made right with you. 
Father, thank you also that through your Son you sent the Spirit. That we would not be left to ourselves, that we would not be alone, but that we would be, uh, that we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and learn to walk with him. Father, might you, might you shape our hearts, make us look more like Jesus. Father, for your glory and for our good. Amen.